Good evening. Turn with me, please, to uh, Genesis chapter 18. That's where our lesson's going to be this evening, Genesis chapter 18. We made reference to this passage this morning in our lesson looking at the life of Abraham. Um, Abraham is told to do uh, some really difficult things. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is as you read through the life of, of Abraham, there are times that he's told to do difficult things, and there's time where he just, he's not really necessarily told to do something, but he faces a confusing or difficult trial or a circumstance. And a lot of the times he faces those things um, in silence, uh, you know, especially with respect to, to talking to God. When it comes to trying to figure out what to do as he's uh, leaving a famine in the land of Canaan and going down to Egypt, he's worried, he's terrified that the Egyptians, who are not a very uh, kind and loving and welcoming people, he's worried that they will kill him and take his wife for themselves. And so he has to figure out what to do here. And he doesn't. He doesn't ask God for guidance or for help, and there's no, there's no indication of that, at least. He ends up coming up with his own plan, and it's a bad one. It's not a very good plan. And God does help him through it and help him out of it. But you see there that Abraham's going to have a, a, a tendency to try to solve matters on his own without talking to God. And so when, uh, when Hagar uh, is offered up to him by Sarah... Uh, and he has an opportunity. He can either, in essence, force this slave to become his wife so that he can have a child through her, or maybe he can talk to God again. And, uh, and we know what he chooses. He doesn't ask God for guidance about that decision. He just makes his own decision, and it's a bad one, and God has to come and, and solve that problem for him. And, and it's like over and over again, Abraham is creating these fires on this journey because uh, he doesn't know how to handle these problems, and he doesn't go to God with them. But one passage that fascinates me is in Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham hears that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, all of a sudden, Abraham's full of all these ideas as to what God should do. And he does speak up then. And so it's like when, when Isaac is uh, told to be offered, he doesn't, he doesn't stand up for Isaac and say, is, that, is this really what you want me to do? You don't seem like that. Like, at least you don't get any idea of that type of conversation. You, you would think that, I would think, if, if I had the choice between seeing Sodom and Gomorrah getting destroyed or my only son getting destroyed... If I was going to speak up for one of those, I'd probably choose, choose my son. Uh, but he, stand, he defends Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just interesting, in my mind, reading through it, when he speaks up to God and when he doesn't. Um, but I think there's a lot that can be learned about just looking at those instances of when he speaks up and when he remains silent. Uh, but in Genesis 18, we get an example of him speaking up. This is the, the conversation he has with God regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's the passage we're going to look at in our lesson this evening. Uh, so we're going to be in Genesis 18. And verse 1 is going to start off by saying, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. So notice that phrase, the Lord appeared to him. That is going to be something that we've seen happen several times already in, uh, in uh, the book of, of Genesis. Uh, if you go back to chapter 12, we're told in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, and we're not exactly told how he said this to him, but somehow Abram gets, gets this message. But as you keep reading down, you get to verse 7. This is after the message comes and after Abram leaves and after he's on his journey. Verse 7 says, 
the Lord appeared to Abram. Well, appearing means you're seeing something. It's like God, God has appeared to him in some way, and now he's talking to God. And, and so from this point, as you read it, as he's discussing, it's the Lord that, he, that he's talking to, and apparently in some way seeing because he, he's appearing to him. Uh, you, you see this happens actually quite a bit as you read through the story of, uh, of Abram. One passage that's interesting is when you get to chapter 15 and verse 1, the language is a little different here. But it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. And then when you get to verse 4, after Abram responds, it says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying. And in this instance, you're having uh, the word of the Lord speaking to him. And there are some who suggest that this type of language of God appearing, and then sometimes it's the word of the Lord appearing. As you read through the way the word of the Lord is described there, it seems like it's described in some anthropomorphic terms, as though there's actually, he's speaking to the word of the Lord. And, uh, and that might lend itself to some of the language used in the Gospel of John. Uh, when Jesus is introduced as the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, some of these instances might, might echo, in some ways, the idea of God appearing as the Word to, to speak to Abram. But God is appearing in some physical form, it seems. Um, you can keep reading through when you get to chapter 17 in verse 1. It says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So like God appears to him again. So he's able to see something there. And this conversation goes on down all the way until you get to chapter 18 in verse 22. It says, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And so God has been talking with him. God has appeared to him. And then at the end of this conversation, God goes up from him. So it's like God is traveling here, and he's able to appear, and he's able to see him in some way. One thing that's interesting about the book of Genesis is if you're reading about angels, or often when you're reading about God, you'll see that there actually uh, tends to be times when angels, I mean, for angels it's pretty much every time, angels, you can't tell when they're, that they're not humans, <laughs> like unless they tell you that. Uh, angels seem to uh, look and act and just like just like people do um uh jacob can wrestle with an angel and have no idea that it's not just a man at least for a little while but then also something fascinating happens we're told that that angel he was wrestling with is elohim is, is god and so all of a sudden we're like wait so wait a minute is that is that an angel or is that god is that a human in, in human flesh? And all of a sudden, you start having a lot of questions about how is God appearing? Well, I think Genesis 18 is a really fascinating example of how God appears. And it appears in Genesis 18 that the Lord appears in flesh. And so perhaps all of these instances where we're hearing that the Lord appeared and that God appeared to him and he's talking to him and then the Lord went up from him and then the Lord uh, in the Garden of Eden was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, Maybe there are instances where God, even in the Old Testament, appears in the form of a man as he uh, speaks to Abram and as he does certain things. I think you can clearly see it in chapter 18. That's probably, of all of these passages, uh, the one where God is described in the most human-sounding terms. And all of this, I think, might be some backdrop that, that 
as you read through it, you get instances, you know, uh, Moses later on, we will be told that no one uh, can see God at any time and live, and yet in that same chapter we'll be told that Noah, or that Moses uh, would speak to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Uh, we're told that, uh, that God showed Moses his back. And if God is, is in his invisible, glorious, holy state, I don't know that he has like an actual visible back. You know, we're told that God is invisible uh, in the Bible as well. And so, so there's these times that God appears and, uh, and all of that, I think, sets the stage for perhaps the same type of idea of what's going to happen much later on when God is actually born of a woman. And uh, you have God who is tabernacles among us as flesh in, in the person of Jesus. And, and so I, uh, I, I don't know. You read through and you see instances of the angel of the Lord that appears. You see an instance in the book of Joshua of the commander of the army of the Lord, of, of hosts. And you see these, these, these individuals who appear that sometimes it, during the conversation with them, you come to find out that this isn't just a person and it's not even just an angel but they will be called Lord, or the ground that they were on will be considered holy ground. And so this is one of those rare instances where God seems to be making an appearance, and uh, appearance perhaps in the form of, of human flesh. And, uh, and so, anyway, it's an interesting thing to read. Whenever you see that type of thing happening, you should, you should take note of that, because it might be setting a precedent for what God can and ultimately plans on doing. I don't know if you want to call it foreshadowing in the story or not, but God will eventually become flesh. And you're seeing instances early on of God's ability to do that type of thing. In Genesis 18, when the Lord appears to him, verse 1, uh, by the oaks of Mamre, while uh, Abraham is sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, Abraham lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, three men... That's how they're described. Three men uh, were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if uh, now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by me. Please let uh, a little water be brought to wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring you a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself that... Um, uh, after that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Uh, so here, Abraham sees three men. And I think he might think something is, is special here. Now, when he says in verse three, my Lord, uh, that's actually not the divine name of God. That's, that's, a, that's a, a word, Adonai. It can be used for human people also. Uh, but he's showing an awful lot of respect. And he asks, if he could wash their feet and give them something to eat. Now, uh, as the story continues, we'll come to see that these are not just three ordinary men. Uh, these three men are described, uh, two of them are described as angels, and one of them is described as Yahweh. And, and that's kind of a jaw-dropping moment when you come to realize that these three people, or these three men, are far more than just men. Uh, but one thing that's interesting about that is a lot of times when we think of angels, you know, we think of like, you know, wings and halos and glowing and all of that stuff. And a lot of that is more to do with an artist's idea 
than what the Bible generally says about angels. Uh, there are times that cherubim or seraphim are described, and they'll, they'll sometimes be described as, uh, as having wings and things like that, but those are also not usually called angels. Uh, angels tend to be something else, and especially in Genesis. Sometimes you'll see angels in shining clothing, so you know something's going on there, but a lot of times in Genesis they just look like men. Uh, and here they have feet that can be washed, so apparently angels can have dirty feet, and uh, apparently uh, they can eat food, and, and apparently when you get to the next chapter, they can be the object of sexual desire uh, when they get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the men of Sodom are trying to beat down the door and, and take the angels. Uh, you have a lot of this, like, uh, strange things going on there, uh, where angels can appear to be more human than, uh, than maybe we, we sometimes deal with or, or think about. But right here, they agree to it, and so they eat, um, and then one of them, the Lord, begins to speak to Abraham, and he tells him that Sarah, in her old age, is going to have a child. And Sarah laughs, and God says, why are you laughing? Is anything too hard for God? And, and she says, I wasn't laughing, even though she was laughing, and he knows that. Uh, and, uh, and so notice verse 14. Uh, he says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Uh, so the Lord is the one who's speaking this, and he takes it as, do you think anything's too difficult for God? Do you think anything's too difficult for the Lord? Well, this conversation is really important to the story that we've been seeing and that we talked about this morning of, of Abraham and, and trying to come to terms with this promise that God has made, even though he's been waiting on it for like 24, 25 years at this point. Well, then when you get to verse uh, 16, it says, Then the men rose from there, and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. So he gets up after having this meal with the three men, and they're walking to Sodom. And Abraham is, is seeing them off, being the good host, and, and seeing them off on their journey. But then verse 17, this is where the lesson, the, you know, for our purposes, the lesson uh, uh, really gets interesting. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the Lord, one of these three men, is thinking, I should really discuss with Abraham the plans that I have concerning Sodom. Uh, Abraham's going to become a great nation. Uh, through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He should be a part of this conversation. And that idea is incredible to me. But it's not completely without precedent, and it's not, it's not um, that unique in the Bible. Uh, what I mean is there's an idea all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, and you see it with Adam and Eve in chapter 2, and you see it throughout the Bible, where God can and surely uh, has every right to be the sole supreme ruler who does everything exactly as he wants to without respect to any of the thoughts or desires or the will of, of human beings. He created us. He can do whatever he wants to. He doesn't have to run anything by us. Why would he run anything by us? But the fascinating thing about the Bible is how often God wants to share his rule with his image bearers. He has created us in his image so that we may rule. And the idea of that is we are supposed to rule and look like God as we do so. We're supposed to rule in his image so that we can imitate him in that way. And so anytime in the Bible God is asking humans to do something, 
Something incredible is happening there. Because surely anything God asks me to do, he could do better. Certainly. <laughs> Why in the world does God want, when God created man and woman, in Genesis 1.28, he says, God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Why? Why not just create people all over the earth and subdue it yourself? You're better at that than us. Uh, why, would you, why would you invite us into that mission? Why would you give us a vocation and a responsibility that you could do better? I mean, why is it that the very next chapter, when, you know, in chapter one of Genesis, after everything God makes, he calls it something. So like the light he called day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning of first day. Uh, the uh, the uh, expanse he called the heavens, the, uh, the dry ground he called the earth. You just read through it and, and like throughout the days, the word called is gonna be used a bunch and God's the one who calls things by different names and gives them purpose and vocation and, and function. Then when you get to Genesis 2, God has created Adam, and then he makes the animals and runs them by Adam, and Adam now is the one who is supposed to call them by their names. And the same word is used. Adam names the animals. Well, surely that's something God could have done, right? Why is Adam doing that? Well, because Adam was supposed to take charge in, in the rulership. He's supposed to be one of those. He was created in the image of God to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over all the animals and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And that's part of him doing that. When God, it's in Genesis 2, it says uh, that there was no shrub because uh, there was no man to cultivate the ground. But God can't create a shrub? <laughs> Surely he can. Uh, he doesn't need a man to cultivate the ground. Why is, he, why is he saying he needs a man? Because the idea, and you can see it over and over again if you, if you stop and look for it, is that God is inviting us in to his domain, to his responsibilities. And so just, just think about uh, the priests of Israel. There's nothing a priest can do that God couldn't do better. Think about our mission in evangelizing the world. Why would God give that? Why would he put the treasure of the glorious gospel in earthen vessels when he could do it himself? And God could, could he's probably a better evangelist than us. Uh, why would God give the responsibility to us? Why would he choose Israel to be a light to the nations when he could illuminate the nations himself? It's because God is intentionally working through people. He created us to have an actual role, a real vital role in his mission for the world. He doesn't want us to be robots who he controls anything and everything. He, that's, that's not what he wants. In his sovereignty, he shares his reign with us in some ways. Now, obviously, that's limited. Uh, I'm not saying we have the, the exact same reign as God in the world or anything like that. It's clearly, he can do things we can't do. But you see over and over again instances of him intentionally sharing his decision-making, even, with us. I mean, what is prayer? If, if prayer has any meaning at all, then God is saying, I want to hear from you, and yes, you can have an impact in the decisions that I make. I mean, that, that's a fascinating idea, and I think that's central to understanding what's going to happen right here with Abraham. God has already shown his willingness to listen to people, to answer people, and even to, to respond in a positive manner to the requests of people. It's like God changes his mind sometimes because of what people have, have prayed and have asked for. And that's an incredible thing to, when you stop and think about it, that, that you can have an impact in the way that God rules the world because he's inviting you to. He's calling for you to. 
And so here he's thinking, he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but I should run this by Abraham. <laughs> okay. Uh, could you make this decision on your own? Absolutely he could. But apparently he doesn't want to. Apparently he would rather talk to Abraham about this. And so in verse 19, uh, this is why God is saying it's important to talk to Abraham because he'll become a great nation, but also for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Uh, so God has chosen Abraham. He wants Abraham to become a great nation. He wants Abraham to influence his children and their children for justice and righteousness and that through Abraham, he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Again, he could do it without Abraham. Surely an omnipotent God could, but he wants to work through his human creations. And so he is uh, saying all this about Abraham to set the stage so that we could read it and realize uh, the job and the call that we have is actually a meaningful one. God, God while he could do it on his own, desires and intends for us to have an actual role in the process. And it's not just an illusion. Uh, it's not just an arbitrary fake thing. Where there's an actual role that we have. That's one of the reasons it would be very, very, very hard for me to ever, to ever become a Calvinist. Uh, because I tend to think that God is actually involving us in his decision-making and in his plans. We actually can have free will and have a say in, in God actually responds to the things that we say, uh, rather than just God and his sovereignty always doing only exactly as he sees fit without respect to any human will or decision or freedom or anything like that. God actually gives us freedom as his image bearers to share in his rule in this world. And uh, you're seeing an example of it really clearly here with, with Abraham. And so what's God going to say to Abraham? You get to verse 20 and it says, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, for their sin is exceedingly grave. And I go down now and see if they have done entirely according to, to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So this is a, an important reminder. And we actually talked about this a little bit last week at the Tower of Babel story, because God does the same thing with the Tower of Babel. Uh, God knows what they're building, and so he says he's going down to check it out, basically. I'm going down to see this. Uh, here we have God. He's heard the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, he could wipe it out on his own. He could uh, punish it however he sees fit, but instead, he's going to go and see it, and he's going to talk to Abraham along the way about it, and we're going to be able to learn some important things from it. But God doesn't destroy quickly and lightly. God actually gives nations and peoples and cities a chance. And so here's God giving them an opportunity. He's going to go and see it for himself. Now, obviously, uh, there's a sense in which, well, God sees everything and knows everything, so why would he have to do this? Um, in the same way that, uh, that God shares his rule with us when he could do things on his own, I think God intentionally is wanting us to know that he doesn't lightly or flippantly destroy. He takes things seriously. So he's not going to rely on the outcry that he knows about. He's going to go in human flesh is the way it seems to be described here and see it for himself. 
So as he is going, he stops and he has this meal with Abraham. He begins to have the discussion with him. And uh, he's going to stop and talk to, with Abraham. And then you get to verse 22. And then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So, so the three men who were there, two of them who were angels, they keep walking to Sodom. And the Lord stays behind and he's going to talk with Abraham now. So here's what you have happening. Terrible things are happening in Sodom. And the Lord is sending angels there to go see for themselves what truly is happening and report back. This is, in essence, this is Sodom's test. Uh, can you show us that you can be a righteous city? Gomorrah, can you show us that you can be a place of justice? Remember, that's what he's calling Abraham in verse 19, to do justice and righteousness. Well, is there any of that in Sodom? Well, he's sending these angels there to go find out. Now, by the way, God already knows. Uh, and I think we'll see that too as the conversation plays out. But he's sending them there for a test. And what you'll see if you read the next chapter is that Sodom fails this test in the most spectacular and horrific way possible. You, if God is sending an angel to your house to find out if you're living righteously or not, um, you shouldn't treat the angel the way the men of Sodom do. Uh, that's, that's a surefire way to fail any possible examination on your righteousness. Uh, what they intend to do is to harm the men, they intend to rape the men, they intend to do like the worst things possible to these angels. Uh, that's not the way to, to treat God's angels. And so, uh, Sodom's going to fail the test. And as that is going on, and as those men are traveling to Sodom, the Lord stays behind and has a fascinating conversation with Abraham. So let's start reading that conversation now. Verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's an interesting question to ask God. Uh, it's a question I've, I've pondered before. Um, and I think, you know, in some sense, in the ultimate judgment of things, uh, no. God, God's pretty good at knowing who is righteous, who is wicked, and sorting things out so that justice prevails, so that God's holiness is secure, and so that uh, God rights all wrongs, and that, the, that there is uh, God's justice that, that reigns. I think in the final judgment, you'll see clearly that. But then there are also times when there might be things that happen in this world, and you wonder, did, did God punish an entire place, and there were righteous people there also? And is that right for God to do? Does God, uh, and, and so you start thinking about some of the, the events in the Bible, like the flood, or uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, or uh, the, the destruction of, uh, of Samaria in, in northern Israel by the, by the Assyrians. Or they're righteous people, or, or the destruction of the Canaanites by the hand of the Israelites, or the destruction of the Egyptians during the plagues and all of that. Like, you start looking at these, and that becomes an important question to ponder uh, over and over again as each of these stories unfold. Uh, are the righteous going to be swept away with the wicked? And is that something that God allows to happen? Is that something that God will stand, uh, stand up for the righteous to not, to not allow that? Um, and I think sometimes you might get different answers depending on which event and circumstance that you're looking at. And, and there's a lot to ponder there. But that's the question Abraham starts with. And we come to find out in this instance that God is well aware of who is righteous and who is wicked. And that absolutely plays into his decision. That absolutely plays into how God is going to, uh, what God is going to deem appropriate for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, Abraham in verse 24, 
He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. 50 righteous. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Just uh, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? That's a pretty powerful case that Abraham makes for Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, imagine there are 50 people there. Aren't you the judge of, of all the earth? And remember, this conversation is like two men talking back and forth, and Abraham's calling him the judge of all the earth. Abraham knows that he's talking to someone different here. Uh, it's, it's just a remarkable scene to keep in your head. But as he says that, he says, imagine there are 50, and you punish them just like you punish the wicked. Doesn't that mean that the the righteous and the unrighteous are treated the exact same? Shouldn't you see a difference between them? And you know what God says? God seems to agree with that logic. God seems to think that Abraham is making a good point. Uh, and so uh, God responds in verse 26. The Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. He doesn't just say, you know what, if I find 50, I'll save those 50. And I'll make sure that the righteous have a nice special place secure as I punish the wicked. He says, on behalf of those 50, I'll spare everybody. That's, an, that's, that's the grace and the mercy of God. God would rather the guilty get away without punishment than see the righteous unjustly punished. He'll spare a lot of the wicked people if it means that he doesn't harm the righteous. The other thing to factor in, though, is God already knows the numbers. Uh, and so it's easy for him to, uh, to have this conversation with Abraham. And I think that's something Abraham might, might not be considering, is that God actually is quite gracious and merciful. And God is not flippantly doing this. So Abraham can walk God from 50, and then the next thing he's going to do is knock him down to 45. What if there's only 45 that are righteous? And again, God's already done them. God has, Abraham thinks he has a great idea of, of mercy and in, in in, 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 uh, grace that should be offered towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's thinking he's going to, you know, be able to talk with God and get God to be as gracious and as merciful as him. But I think what he might need to learn is that God has already been far more gracious and merciful than, than Abraham is aware of. Uh, God doesn't flippantly quickly destroy. God factors in everything Abraham's going to say already. Uh, and so Abraham then goes in verse 27. Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord as though, uh, although I am but dust and ashes. Uh, so he's, he realized he's about to press God a little bit here, and he's very nervous about doing that. Uh, he's going to try to take it a step further, and so he responds with utmost humility, but then he speaks up again, and he says, uh, verse 28, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And that's a clever way to word that. He doesn't say, what if it's 45 instead? Will, will 45 make a difference? He, he does the math in such a way that he says, all right, but what if it's only five less than 50? 
surely five is such a small number, you won't destroy a city because of five people. And that's, he's not saying he's going to destroy a city because of five people. He's saying he's going to destroy a city because of however many there are that are wicked there. There might be, I mean, we don't know exactly how big Sodom is. I know there's estimates out there, but I don't know how, how anyone can know for certain. But let's say there's thousands of people there. He's not destroying it because of five. He's destroying it because of thousands. Uh, but Abraham doesn't quite word it that way. You, you would destroy the city because of five? Um, and so he says, uh, 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 then God responds in verse 28, and he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So God does the rest of the math for him. And, uh, and so Abraham's like, you wouldn't destroy it for five. And God says, if there's 45, I won't destroy it. Uh, then he goes again. Verse 29, he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And God says, I will not destroy it if I find 30 there. And he said again, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. Notice every time now he's... he's uh, setting up his next request with a declaration of humility and a request that God not be angry, but he's taking them down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20. And then he says, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God says, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And so that's, that's an impressive thing that Abraham has just done. Uh, now, granted, God put up zero fight at all. God let Abraham run the conversation. He let Abraham haggle him down without putting any offering. It's not like Abraham said 50, and God said 100, and Abraham said, no, 75. And, like, God's actually haggling in the opposite way. Like, normally, if, if, if you want to sell me something, and you want $100 for it, and I want $50 for it, we meet somewhere in the middle, right? It's like, you go down a little bit, I go up a little bit, and we haggle that way. With this haggle, it's just like, it's only going one direction. God says, okay, 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 okay. And I'm curious, I'm curious what would have happened if Abraham would have kept going lower. Uh, you know, maybe, which, could Abraham have uh, have had more sway than, uh, than he even has right here. We don't know. Uh, but Abraham stops at 10, and the fascinating thing is that God, knowing there's not 10 there, does do what Abraham asked about at the very beginning. When Abraham says, or, or God does not do it, I guess. When Abraham says, you will not indeed sweep the righteous away with the wicked, will you? God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. As a matter of fact, what he does is he gives the only righteous ones there an opportunity to get out. And that's something Abraham never even asked him to do. God is well aware of who is righteous there and who is wicked there. And he knows that the wicked are going to be destroyed. And he's willing to say, yeah, I don't, if there's 500, if there's 100, if there's 50, if there's 10, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spare it. But the fact is, there aren't that many. There is a lot, though. And I'll spare Lot. And I'll give him and his family the opportunity to get out. And so when the angels go there, you read the next chapter, they give them opportunity to get out. They give Lot and his sons-in-law, who refuse to go, 
and his daughters and his wife who turns back. And, and you come to realize that God is even allowing Lot and people who probably aren't all that righteous the opportunity to get out also. And a lot of them refuse, but Lot and his daughters do eventually make it out. And even as they make it out, they make additional requests that God grants them. They're told, go to the mountains. Go to the mountains, and if you go there, you'll be safe. And instead of saying, okay, they say, I don't want to go to the mountains. Let us go to this small town here. And then you get to Genesis 19. Uh, look at verse uh, 21. After, uh, after Lot asks, let me go and, and take refuge in a small town rather than going to the mountains, it says, he said to him, behold, I grant you this request too, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And then they named the, uh, the town Zoar. But think about that. There was a town that was going to be destroyed. And then Lot was supposed to go to the mountains because all these towns were going to be destroyed. And he says, no, let me go take refuge in this town instead. And he says, okay, go to the town and nothing will be destroyed until you get there. And I'm going to spare the whole town because you're there. All of a sudden, Lot arriving at a town ends up meaning the whole town is saved. But then, as you read through it, you come to find out that he doesn't even go to the town. Instead, verse 30, uh, or, or he goes to the town, but then he moves off from it. And he says, uh, Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, uh, for they were afraid to stay in Zoar. And so he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. So they were going to go to this town, but then they're afraid to be in the town. And so then they leave and go up to the mountains anyway, and God has spared the town. So all of that is a way of saying God knows who is righteous and who is wicked. And God wants Abraham to be part of the discussion. So God willingly lets him talk to him and, and haggle with him and, and throw out his ideas. God is willing to listen to and grant Abraham's ideas. Uh, but there aren't 10 righteous people in there. And so God goes above and beyond. And he not only saves Lot, he offers to save Lot's family. And a lot of them refuse to go. And so Lot is able to escape. And he saves the town that Lot goes into, even though that town should have been destined for destruction. And then he allows Lot to go into the mountains. And then guess what Lot does as soon as he goes to the mountains? Well, it's, it's kind of like what, uh, as soon as, as, soon as uh, Adam and Eve and, and leave uh, the Garden of Eden, they have sons, Cain and Abel. And it's like, as soon as they escape that punishment, some sin happens. Cain kills Abel. And then you have Noah with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, or with, uh, with the flood. And as soon as the flood's over, he ends up getting drunk and sinning, like as, right after that destruction is over. Well, here you have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And right after that, when Lot is spared and he's able to go off, he ends up sinning in, uh, with, with his daughters. And it's like every time God does spare someone, they then go on to continue in the types of sins that the people were just punished for. And Lot's going to do that very thing uh, right here. But in all of this, I think you're getting a very powerful demonstration of God's willingness to work with and through humans, even though just about every human he's going to work with is going to prove to be uh, unworthy of that, God still does so. God's grace towards a city that absolutely deserves destruction— 
I mean, they, they were like the worst, like, you can't, I think Sodom and Gomorrah is pictured as the way that it is, because you can't picture a city worse than that. You, if you're a foreigner and you walk into the city, you can't even find a place to sleep without being taken and ravaged and killed. Like, it's a violent, ruthless, sexually immoral city that even angels can't visit without them trying to beat down the doors. They go blind, and they're still trying to beat down the doors to get with it. Like, it's a terrible city. Uh, and that's what this place had become. And God says he'd still be willing to save it if there were ten. That's a pretty incredibly gracious God that we serve. God wants to save. God wants to forgive. To the extent that he would even send his son to die for people who are sinners. He, we're told in the days of Jesus, he said, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you see now, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. God is sending his son to bring about repentance, even of the most vile sinners that there are, even of me and even of you, because God loves and longs to forgive and wants us to be a part of the story. Um, I think you can see, you know, we can, we can read Sodom and Gomorrah and we say, see, God punishes and destroys because of sin. That's true. But you can also see, even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, an astounding amount of the grace of God. And that is something that I think can give each and every one of us hope as we consider our lives and we consider our journey of faith with the God who loves us very much. You can look at Abraham and you can see there are many times God could have said, okay, I'm choosing someone else. This isn't going well. But God doesn't do that. He sticks with Abraham. He consults Abraham. He listens to Abraham. He works through Abraham. And through Abraham, he ultimately brings about the Christ who would bless the whole world. And we get to share in that and be a part of it. Let's never lose hope and the grace, and the goodness, and the forgiveness of our God. And if there's anyone here tonight who may be looking at your life, you realize you're in need of the grace and the mercy of God. It's available to you right now. Uh, you uh, can reach out to God. You can ask for the prayers of the church here. We'd love to be able to help you in any way that we can. But if you have a need, we pray that you would let it be known, and come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.